Good morning. A few days ago, American superstar singer Kanye West made comments that raised eyebrows. He said that slavery was a choice. The repercussions were quick. He was widely ridiculed on Twitter and on social media. His songs stopped getting radio time in certain areas and he lost millions of followers on Twitter. The full extent of the consequences is still to be determined. American poet H.W. Longfellow wrote a poem called The Slave's Dream in which he wrote about a slave's nostalgic final dream as he dreamed about his past freedom. And he writes this. Beside the ungathered rice he lay, his sickle in his hand. His breast was bare, his matted hair was buried in the sand. Again, in the mist and shadow of sleep, he saw his native land. Wide through the landscape of his dreams, the lordly Niger flowed. Beneath the palm trees on the plain, once more a king he strode and heard the tinkling caravans descend the mountain road. He saw once more his dark-eyed queen among her children stand. They clasped his neck, they kissed his cheeks, they held him by the hand. A tear burst from the sleeper's lids and fell into the sand. And then at furious speed he rode along the Niger's bank. Before him, like a blood-red flag, the bright flamingos flew. From morn till night he followed their flight o'er plains where the tamarind grew, till he saw the roofs of Kafre huts and the ocean rose to view. The forests with their myriad tongues shouted of liberty, and the blast of the desert cried aloud with a voice so wild and free that he started in his sleep and smiled at their tempestuous glee. He did not feel the driver's whip or the burning heat of day, for death had illumined the land of sleep, and his lifeless body lay, a worn-out fetter that the soul had broken and thrown away. This morning we're going to look at the requirements and constraints of a slave in a sermon entitled, A Slave's Torment. A Slave's Torment. Our text is Romans chapter 16 and verse 19, but I will read verses 17 through 20 for us. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to it. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 20. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. Verse 19, this is our text for this morning. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good, and innocent as to what is evil. I've divided this sermon into three parts, and we will look at three phrases in verse 19. And the first point that I want to make is that there is a choice in slavery. The choice in slavery. Let me read the verse again. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. Now in this verse, Paul says, obedience, then he says, be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. But the first thing is obedience. 
Now, I'm going to read verse 18, and I want you to look at the command Paul gives that is not obvious. It is between the lines, and I want you to try to figure it out. So in verse 18, for such men are slaves. Paul is talking about false teachers, and he says, such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. What is Paul saying? He's saying that false teachers are not slaves of Jesus Christ, but they are slaves of their own appetites. And the underlying command in that is that he wants us to be slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the actual word there is the word slave. I know in some Bible translations it says servant, but the actual word there is slave. Who is a slave? A slave is a person who serves whether he likes it or not, without a choice in the matter, because he is subject to an alien will, the will of his owner. Now, there are several Greek words for the word servant, but two main Greek words for the word slave. One is oikites, in which the stress is on the relationship of that slave with outside society, and the second word is doulos, in which the stress is on the relation of that slave and his dependence on his Lord. So of the two words that Paul could have used when he encourages a believer to be a slave of Jesus Christ, he chooses the worst one, where you're completely dependent on his Lord. Now we have a problem, because we have been taught that when we were Without Christ, we were slaves of ourselves and slaves of the world, slaves of evil, and we were taught that we became free. And so in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, it says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons. So we were taught that we were slaves before. When we met Christ, we became free. But now Paul is saying that we need to be slaves of Jesus Christ. How can we reconcile the two? How can we reconcile the seeming dichotomy? I've got two ways by which we can reconcile this. One is slave is a person who obeys. Slave is a person who obeys. And that's the meaning of the word slave. In Romans chapter 6, verse 16, it says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? So you can choose who you want to be a slave to. By obeying someone, you become slaves of that person. If we obey our passions, we are slaves of our passions. If we obey our culture, we are slaves of our culture. If we obey God, we are slaves of God. Secondly, the way to reconcile this problem is by examining the relationship between us and God. Now, when a person becomes a believer, he gets into this unique relationship that God establishes with that person. And there is no relationship like it. There is no relationship like it. So we use numerous human relationships to try to explain this relationship with God. So the different kinds, the different aspects of that relationship with God is as a creator, creature, as a master, slave, as a father, child, 
as a bridegroom and bride, as a friend, friend. But there is no human relationship that can completely explain it. So we use different parts of different human relationships. Now, my relationship with my wife is as a husband and a wife. That is one relationship. But on top of that, I can add a second relationship as friend and friend. Okay, so those are the only two relationships that overlap. With me and my wife, there is no relationship as a master, slave, creator, creature, savior, redeemed. There is none of those relationships. There is only husband and wife and friend and friend. That's it. But when you come to this relationship with God, there are so many layers to it that make it so complex. We are in a friend relationship with God in terms of our present and future knowledge of each other. We are a creator-creature relationship in terms of our physical sustenance. We are in a savior-redeemed relationship in terms of our salvation and eternal destiny. We are in a groom-bride relationship in terms of intimacy. We are in a father-child relationship with God in terms of our access and our ignorance. We are in a master-slave relationship in terms of our allegiance and obedience to God. Who are we to God? We are his child, we are his bride, his creature, his redeemed, his friend, his slave, all at the same time. And just to make it a little more complicated, the Bible says that our relationship is such a metaphysical relationship that we are in him and he is in us. How on earth can we humanly describe the relationship between God and us? And one small slice of that relationship is as a master and slave, and we cannot fully grasp the depth of that relationship. And so, as a master and slave, we have the choice to choose God as our master. Even though Kanye West said that slavery was a choice, I believe Kanye West, but not in the sense that he intended it. He intended it, I think, as if a slave had a choice between slavery and freedom. I don't believe that. I believe that the choice that a slave had was between slavery and death. And therefore, the worse of the options was death, the better of the options was slavery, and so he chose slavery. As a person, we have the chance to choose our master. We have the choice in slavery, and we can choose whether we want God or our family, or God or our work, or God or ourself, or God or our culture. We have the chance to choose. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 6 says, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Secondly, let's come to the table of good and evil. And let me read the verse again. Romans chapter 6 verse 19. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good. Do we do what is good? Do we know what is good? To do what is good. Do we have the knowledge of good and evil? Now, if you've done any kind of statistical analysis or learning 
of any kind, one of the basic starting points is a two by two table, which is used to calculate many of the initial parameters like sensitivity and specificity and so on. So there's a two by two table with four components to it. So I've made a two by two table and I will call it the table of good and evil. So in this table, good is in the upper left corner, then there's evil, then there's knowledge of good and knowledge of evil. And I'm gonna show different scenarios and who has what. Do we do good? Do we do evil? Do we have a knowledge of good or do we have a knowledge of evil? Adam and Eve, before they sinned, did what was good. Adam and Eve did what was good. They did not do what was evil. They did not have a knowledge of good. They did not have a knowledge of evil. When they fell, when they sinned, disobeyed God and fell, they did what was evil. They had a knowledge of good. They had a knowledge of evil. And they did not do what was good. Jesus does what is good, he does not do evil, he has a knowledge of good, and he has a knowledge of evil. And a Christian, and this is why I even bring up this table, a Christian does what is evil because of his human background, he does what is good because Jesus is in him, and he has a knowledge of good and evil. A Christian in heaven is likely to do good, and no evil, and he may have a knowledge of good and evil, I don't know. The Bible is not clear on that. So back to the question. What is the good that Paul is talking about? We can answer the question, what is good, by answering the question, who is good? And to answer the question, who is good, I'm going to read three verses. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says, none is righteous, no, not one. Mark chapter 10 verse 18, Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. If nobody is righteous and only God is good, if God is inherently good, it follows that anything that proceeds from God is good. In John chapter 10 verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. God is the only one that's good and anything that follows from God is good. And if Jesus and the Father are one, it follows that anything that proceeds from Jesus is good. Therefore, what is the nature of Jesus? In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, it reads, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And it is the Holy Spirit that produces these characteristics. And Romans chapter 8 reminds us that the Holy Spirit that is in Jesus Christ is also in us and can produce these characteristics from the inside out. So how can we do what is good when we live in an evil background? And the simplistic answer is, to stay in constant communion with God and the Holy Spirit, and he will change us from the inside out. It's not like we have to wake up in the morning and say, okay, today I'm going to be good. Today I'm going to have joy. Tomorrow I'm going to have peace. Day after tomorrow I'm going to have patience. No, it's that the change happens from the inside out, not we ourselves trying to do what is good. In their number one song, Enter Sandman, 
California-based band Metallica, in their 1991 eponymous album, wrote these words. Say your prayers, little one. Don't forget, my son, to include everyone. Tuck you in, warm within, keep you free from sin. Till the Sandman he comes. Sleep with one eye open, gripping your pillow tight. Exit light, enter night. Let me say that again. Exit light, enter night. The opposite is true. Enter light, exit night. If you come into a dark room and you want light, you don't need to try to get rid of the darkness. All you need to do is turn on the light and the entry of light is the starting point. It is the presence or the absence of light that defines the presence or the absence of darkness. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, the real son of God is at your side. He is beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He is beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life and thought, his zoe, into you, beginning to turn the tin soldier into a live man. The more we let God take control of our lives, the more we let the Holy Spirit take control of our lives, he turns us from the tin soldier into a live man. Thirdly, Paul said to be innocent of evil. To be innocent of evil. Romans chapter 16 verse 19 for your obedience is known to all, so I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The word innocent in the Greek word is that of a metal that has no trace of alloy, or of milk that is undiluted with water, or a city or a country that has walls and the walls are not broken. Let's come back for a second to the table of good and evil. As an adult, as a Christian adult, we do good, we do evil, we have the knowledge of good, and we have the knowledge of evil. What about a child? A child does what is good and does what is evil without the knowledge of good or evil. Does anybody have a child about two years old or less? Two years old? Two years old? Yes, sir. What's the name of your child? Jack. Jack? So let's say that you're watching NBA. The Eastern Finals are going to start today. Let's say that you're going to watch the NBA Finals. And as you're watching, somebody got dinged for a technical. And before anybody could stop it, that person let out a cuss word. Now you heard it. Jack heard it. You know what the cuss word is. Jack heard it and he repeats it. Now, when he repeats it, he is doing evil without the knowledge of good and evil. He is doing evil without the knowledge of good and evil. Yes, as he grows up, his mind will also get into the gutter like your mind does. But that will take time for him to get the knowledge of good and evil. Can you give me two words to describe a newborn or, or any kid under the age of maybe two or three months. Two words. Loud. Dependent. Loud and dependent. Can I give you two words to describe a, a newborn? How about ungrateful and self-centered? 
Newborns behave in a way that would be completely unacceptable in social circles. But we tend to excuse their self-centered and loud behavior because they are ignorant of evil, right? They are ignorant of evil. But if your 10-year-old behaves the exact same way in an ungrateful and self-centered way, you're not going to tolerate it because they should know better. They have the knowledge of good and evil, at least in those realms. So when God is asking us to be innocent of evil, he is not asking us to be ignorant of evil. Because as adults, we know what is good and evil. He's not saying be, be ignorant of evil. So there are certain religions and certain denominations that promote ignorance of evil as being equal to innocence of evil. So they would go up on a mountaintop and stay there on the cabin away from sin to be pure. But that's not what God has asked us to do. He wants us to be in the world, though not of the world. So what is Paul trying to say here? He's not saying be ignorant of evil because we know, we have the knowledge of sin. He's asking us to be innocent of evil. And that is innocence by choice. Innocence of evil despite the knowledge of good and evil. Integrity even though we are surrounded by evil. How can we know? Is there a test by which we can know whether we are innocent of evil? I suggest this test that will suggest to us whether we are innocent of evil or not. And let me give you the context before I read the verse. The verse is in 2 Peter, and it's about Lot, who is the nephew of Abraham. So the story is that Lot and his uncle Abraham were traveling together, and then there were skirmishes between them and their servants, and so they separated ways. Lot went into the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham went into the other side. And as it turns out, those two cities were supremely evil, and God came and rescued Lot. Now, from the account in Genesis, you don't know the thinking and the spiritual status of Lot, but fortunately, 2 Peter has described that for us. And if you'll turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2 and verses 7 and 8, this is what it says. And if he, God, rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Lot was being tormented as he lived in a sinful culture. His soul was tormented in the presence of evil. On February 1, 1865, the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery was signed into law by President Abraham Lincoln. Look at this picture of a former slave that was subsequently released from a plantation in Louisiana. This picture was taken two years after the amendment was signed. You can see the crisscrossing of the scars on his back from the torture that he received. 
I suggest to you that if we are innocent of evil and the more we become progressively innocent of evil, we will face a certain kind of torment of the soul as we continue to exist on earth. There may be times that we did certain things before we became Christian. And if you go back to those scenarios or those friends that continue to do those things, you will feel a certain torment of the soul. If you see evil and you cannot wait for Jesus to come back and set things right and rectify everything, maybe that is a sign that you are innocent of evil. The story of Lot is a reflection of our state where God had to come and rescue the righteous from among the wicked. And maybe as we live on this earth over time, our souls will be tortured because we are innocent of evil. Let me draw a parallel. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, even though he was God, came on earth as a human being. He took on the role of a slave. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 says, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant. And the word used for bond servant is the exact same word that Paul uses. Jesus became a doulos. Jesus became a slave and he lived on earth. His entire life was as a slave on earth, living in perfect obedience to his father's wishes. And even though his entire life was as a slave, let me take you back to one incident that is significant for being symbolic for his submission as a slave. Let me take you back to a scene on the night before Jesus died. They came to celebrate the Passover. Jesus and his disciples came to the upper room, which was owned by John Mark's parents. They came to the upper room. They sat across a long rectangular table, and the dinner on that day had four courses to it. And the culture was, at the beginning of the first course, the head of the table would wash his hands. At the beginning of the second course, everybody else would get up and wash their hands. So when Jesus got up at the beginning of the first course of that dinner to wash his hands, everybody thought he was just following the custom. But that's not what he did. Instead of washing his hands, Jesus took out his outer robe, laid it on one side, took a towel, wrapped it around his waist, and he went he took a bucket with water and washed the disciples' feet. That was the job of a slave. In fact, that job of washing disciples or anybody's feet was so menial that a Jewish slave would not wash somebody else's feet. That job was given to slaves that were non-Jews in Israel. And that is the job that Jesus did. He puts himself in the position of a doulos. 
Throughout his life on earth, Jesus was in constant communion with his father, even though he didn't need to be. It's not like he was trying to be holy, but he wanted constant communion with his father. If Lot was righteous and his soul was tormented living on earth, living in Sodom and Gomorrah, imagine the torment that the soul of Jesus faced as he lived a perfect life on sinful earth. The day after the washing of the feet and his symbolic slave ship, while he was hanging on the cross, Jesus cried these words of agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus cry that? Because the burden of sin upon his shoulders and the momentary seeming separation from his father resulted in a cry that is the epitome of the torment that his soul faced because of sin. My prayer this morning is that we would be true slaves of God living in complete obedience to him. And as we spend time in communion with him, our lives will be more and more pure and we will increasingly face a slave's torment of the soul as we live on earth. I'm going to give the opportunity for us to respond to the sermon. If there's anybody here who's never invited Jesus into your life, you can pray this prayer after me, which I'll pray in a minute. But if there's somebody here who has invited Jesus into your life, maybe you did invite Jesus, but Jesus is not your master, and you are not his slave, because we are following the desires of our selfish nature, and we are following culture, and we are following family. We're following work. We are even following Christian ministry instead of following Christ. You can choose your master today. Maybe there's somebody here who doesn't spend enough time in communion with God, and therefore you don't see a change in your character from the inside out, the kind of change that the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. Or maybe there's somebody here who is not tormented by sin. It may just be that we are not innocent of sin if we are not tormented by it. If there's anybody here who's never invited Jesus into your life, you can pray this prayer after me. And if it's a prayer that comes from the bottom of your heart, God will fulfill his end of the promise. You can pray something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I am a slave to myself. I am a slave to my passions and my desires. I ask you to free me from my slavery. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your death. Thank you for your resurrection. I ask you to come into my life and build a relationship with me, Lord, as a savior, as a creator, as a friend, as a groom, Thank you for the promise of eternal life. Help me to live a life that you have called me to. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.